Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Despite the resurgence of the old-fashioned in post-mad men's society, few would argue against the fact that the two drinks vying for position of most iconic cocktail are the Manhattan and the Martini. As such, drinkers often find themselves in one of two camps. Are you a martini lover, or are you still developing as a drinker? I jest. But what if you didn't have to choose, listener? What if there were one drink that, depending on how you skewed the ratios of base, spirit, and supporting ingredient, it could lean toward being a Manhattan riff or a martini riff? And I think you know where I'm going with this one. It's the topic of today's show, the Alaska. And that's all I'll say on the cocktail for now. Because joining us today to discuss this potent potion that allows for personalization is Alaska resident himself, Trey Sanford. After honing his craft in New Orleans and San Francisco, Trey now works as the bar manager at Anchorage's South Restaurant and Coffee House, which has a gym-focused program boasting over 150 bottles. So, to the last frontier we head, listener, mixologically speaking, of course, on this week's episode of the Cocktail College Podcast. The warmest of welcomes in the world to our guest today, Trey Samford. Trey, thank you for joining us in the studio. Thank you. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) And you know what, Trey? I think it's physically impossible that we could have had anyone travel further from within the United States to be in the studio today. How, How many miles do you reckon... It stands between us and, and your home of Alaska there. Uh, last I checked, about three and, a, three and a half thousand miles. Three and a half thousand miles. Something like that. Jesus. Yeah. As the crow flies. <laughs> as yeah. the crow. <laughs> not, as, uh, not as your airline flies, unfortunately. Yeah, but, you know, you exactly. hit a little bit of turbulence there, figuratively speaking. But anyway, you made it. We're here. Of course, people already know from the intro, but, you know, what else could we cover today but the Alaska cocktail? Well, there's actually a lot to it. This is a very complicated cocktail with a complicated history. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a little bit of the history behind it. You know, some people say this cocktail originates in 1867 at the signing of uh, Alaska as a territory. You know, it was served at a dinner for uh, then Secretary William Seward. You know, uh, back in Alaska, it's, uh, Alaska is called Seward's Folly, right? So they still refer to it as because, uh, you know, it sat as a territory for, what, 150 years before they ever made it a state. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Really crazy. (laughs) So um, they say this is a drink served and that yellow chartreuse was a uh, drink favored by William Seward, right? So that's sort of where that tracks. But again, that story is a little too tidy to be anything but apocryphal. So we're going to go forward to uh, the first published recipe of this drink by uh, Jacques Staub in 1913. And um, this version of the drink is um, using Old Tom Gin. That's very important that it's Old Tom Gin. It's interesting to me that Old Tom Gin was used because its popularity was sort of on the downswing by 1913. Right. Was supplanted by London Dry. And maybe that's where I can get a little bit behind the theory that it's an older drink that had just languished in the wilderness without getting, uh, you know, any publishing credits for years. Mm -hmm. Because Old Tom Gin is just very outdated by this point. So it's using Old Tom Gin, uh, yellow chartreuse, and orange bitters, right? Um, uh, Yellow chartreuse uh, was first made in 1840. 
So, and Old Tom Gin was very surging in popularity in 1867. So it makes sense that those two would be put together. So the 1913 recipe uses those in basically a Manhattan build. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think of it more as a Manhattan than a martini. Interesting. In that it's, and if you approach it like that, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a, it's a stronger, sweeter, more aromatic drink. Whereas, you know, whenever I'm approaching a martini, I want it to be soft. I want the botanicals, you know, things like that. Not as, I, I want a good texture, but it's really, um, you know, not as much of as a, as a uh, vehicle for aromatics, in my opinion, right? So you approach it like a Manhattan, it's 212 of Old Tom Gin, Yellow Chartreuse, Orange Bitters, mm-hmm. right? Let's flash forward to the next published recipe of it. That would be the Savoy Cocktail Book, Harry Craddock. Okay. What's Craddock telling us? Yeah, Craddock's got, got some interesting takes on this one, <laughs> as uh, he's wont to do. So um, we get to the Harry Craddock version, and uh, he has this quote about it. Uh, so far as can be ascertained, this delectable potion is not the staple diet of the, I'm not going to say this word because it's uh, potentially offensive, but uh, a word for Alaskan Native people that is <laughs> no longer <laughs> in use. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was probably first thought of in South Carolina. So that's tongue in its name. <laughs> South Carolina. I could not find anything tying this to South Carolina, but I'll give South Carolina benefit of the doubt. They invented the planter's punch, right? Okay. That's maybe a controversial take, but Planters Hotel in Charleston has the first credit for the planter's punch. They're slept on as a, you know, cocktail state. So mm-hmm. I'll give them that. So that that's really all he has to say about it. It's kind of kind of an interesting um, I, I I read that and I just figured it was kind of like a tongue in cheek like sure. just, you know, <laughs> almost an, a wink wink nudge nudge like it doesn't have anything to do with Alaska, sure. probably. So let's just go the full smile <laughs> and just call it South not? Carolina, right? Like, sure. could have been Nebraska, yeah. could have been whatever. Yeah, I don't know, or or maybe hey. I don't know. I mean, Wondrich, if you're listening, yeah, I'm sure he's thought about this. I'm sure, sure. he's probably dismissed it as well yeah. as a theory. Um, yeah, this version goes three to one, which is really interesting. Much drier. So you're going three parts London dry gin now. So we're not using the old Tom anymore. We're using London Mm -hmm. Dry, which is now very much in style and the more preferred uh, style of gin at that time to one part chartreuse. Uh, Also adds a lemon twist at this point. Um, Here's where it's really weird, and I didn't mention this on the last version of it. These are both shaken, which is very interesting to me. I I, I guess I could see that um, you have a drink uh, with a lot of viscosity, especially if you're doing that old Tom version. Old Tom, and they're really, you know, call back to that. For those of you who don't know the style of Old Tom, it is a very old style of gin that was made basically, I mean, its origins is as sort of a bathtub gin of um, the Victor- pre-Victorian England. And um, they had to add sweeteners to it because the, uh, you know, drinkability of it was very low without the sugar, right? So it's a sweeter style of gin. With a lot of richness, a lot of viscosity, especially the style they would have had around in mm-hmm. that era, right? So, it would, I mean, I guess I get it. Shaking it, you're getting more dilution. I mean, as a rule, right, we stir all spirit drinks. We shake, you know, drinks with citrus and other things that need emulsification. Um, so, I don't know what the logic was behind that other than you're trying to reach a greater amount of dilution. Here's an alternative take for you. And I, I have nothing to back this up. 
Because I've often thought about this. Why do some cocktails evolve from originally being shaken and, sure. and now stirred? What if it was purely just because at this time, cocktails very much, uh, you, know, you know, a form of uh, kind of class and, and it's a classy beverage, right? It's a trendy beverage. It's something that's pretty new. And as this cocktail culture is spreading, just the very art of shaking a cocktail, it's more, it grabs the attention more, right? Sure. Like it shows sure. you if you're in that room, if you're in that bar, if you're at a fancy hotel bar and they're shaking these drinks versus stirring, which is very kind of subdued and, and, and minimal, right? Maybe it's just purely that. Like, showmanship. Yeah. yeah, showmanship. Exactly. Were they thinking so much about the end product? I like to hope so, but right. we don't know. Well, uh, what's interesting to me about though the shake versus shake, stir for the era that it is and the style of drink it is, I would even push a third option, a throw. I think this is a drink that greatly benefits from a throw. Now, the numbers we do at my restaurant and the volume we're doing and, uh, shall we say, the desires of our clientele does not allow us to do our cocktail stone. I have tried this drink thrown, and it's incredible. The mm-hmm. aromatics just really come out of that yellow chartreuse. And, I mean, that's really what a throw does. It's going to give you the right dilution, and it's going to agitate it, uh, but really make those aromatics pop. So the shake is really interesting because shaking does sort of dull the aromatics yeah. of this. And, I mean, it puts your dilution at a very high rate. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it's just, yeah, fashion or whatever, different thinking. Also, we have to remind ourselves of all the time, like, ice would have been different quality. Sure. Ingredients were different quality. Right. Different profiles to what we know now. Not chartreuse, of course, as we know, and we'll get into those. those sure. Those fine monks, those Carthusian monks have been doing their thing for eternity and, and doing it very well. Right. Um, so, but then that leads us on to the third. And is that another fellow with uh, hot takes? Yeah. Traditionally? I mean, maybe you've heard of him, David Embury, right? <laughs> He's a favorite of mine. Yeah. 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 Famous lawyer, David Embury. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I would love to see him with a Yelp account, right? Mm, yeah, oh somebody God, needs to give yeah. him a Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, this one's really interesting. The formula changes yet again. Um, and he also offers an alternative uh, drink. So his version is more of like a, it's a two and a half, three quarter. So sort of an interesting uh, spec. The orange bitters, I believe, are omitted by this point. Okay. Um, and that drink is stirred. Um, he also offers to us that this drink is also known as the Oriental, which is not... I can't find a reference to any other printed version of this drink Mm -hmm. that refers to these specs as that. But he says that's the alternate name for it. He also offers us a riff on this drink, which this could be a whole other episode for you. I don't know. (laughs) But you decide that. But a drink called the Gnome. Have you tried this? Gnome, like Gnome Alaska, right? And um, this drink splits the chartreuse to be Fino Sherry and a garnish of fresh mint. And that drink is actually incredibly good because it takes it more to martini level because that Fino Sherry is really nice and briny um, offset against the – this one's also London Dry Gin. The David Embry uh, is London Dry. And uh, the Yellow Chartreuse, the sweetness of that is cut up a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? So it gives the drink a lot more balance, I I think. Uh, This was one – Whenever we were experimenting with the Alaska cocktail at our bar uh, many years ago, that this came up, and, well, I got to try it. Mm-hmm. I love. I'm a big sherry fan. I don't know about you, but I think uh, when in doubt, 
for aromatic cocktails. Uh, a dash of sherry. A dash to of it. sherry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this daiquiri is out of balance. Uh, a little, a little sherry. <laughs> I'll bring it up to equilibrium. <laughs> you know. So that's that's a really interesting version of it mm-hmm. that David Embry brings. After that, this drink has a really hard century. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk sure about. Is. What the ingredients of the drink are. I mean, orange bitters, right? I mean, if we want to break it down, ingredient by ingredient here. Old Tom Gin in the original recipe finds itself in the wilderness very shortly after the first recipe is printed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You go to yellow chartreuse, which is not always finding even distribution in the United States, even now. But imagine back then, before all this cocktail stuff happened, you know, yeah. chartreuse's popularity really went down to the point, as you know, uh, in w- one of my adopted cities of New Orleans, they were having to uh, mix it with pineapple juice and put it in alligator cups at the World's Fair just to hit numbers back just in the 80s, it, right? Can it. you imagine <laughs> a world where they're not selling enough chartreuse <laughs> that they have to get a marketing agent? I, that's just insane to me, right? So. The, it's uneven distribution for yellow chartreuse. You don't see it behind a lot of bars right? Um, for the better part of a century. And then orange bitters. This is the one we really take for granted because orange bitters were not commercially available until the 2000s, right? There's so All of those brands had fallen off. Um, you have Regan's yeah, bitters. Which is the, sort of the gold standard. It's kind of the one and only for me. I'll, I'll put my cards on the table there. You know, this is a very, I, I really don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers here, right? Because <laughs> the orange bitters is just so interesting in that, like, Angostura, done for an aromatic bitter. Yeah. You know, for uh, a bitter with more levity. We are all in agreement the Pichaud yeah. is the gold standard. But then we get to orange bitters. There's not a Coca Cola of orange bitters. There's not a go-to. I mean, you could say Regan's, but every bar I go to, they got a different one. And then there's the Fegans, right? Mm-hmm. People do yeah, Fegans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care for that because the Fee Brothers, like the glycerin flavor, it just ruins it for me. But uh, for me, we use Scrappies. Scrappies, Scrappies I like. Orange. Scrappies is a yeah. close second for me. Sure. Um, it's uh, Regan's is interesting because it has that caramel base. It has mm-hmm. a burnt caramel base, and it just depends on the cocktail. Um, like some people add, do you do you put orange bitters in your martini? I I, I go through stages. Yeah, but yeah probably same. you know like you know gun to my head. Last martini I ever drank, I probably go two dashes orange bitters. Two be dashes yeah. of Riggins. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I'd, I'd I'd ask from it from the bottle with his face on it back and before they yeah. changed it. Yeah, R.I.P. Yeah. yeah, that's a real shame. But um, yeah, I mean for me that burnt caramel base it really competes uh, in a lot of those like drier cocktails. Mm-hmm. But in this drink it, it works. Mm-hmm. You could definitely use your Regans. The the uh, distribution of Regans is is not there for us in Alaska. There isn't mass distribution. It's not mm-hmm. something my reps can get for me. We can mail order it, mm-hmm. but. Yeah. Um, because of its unavailability, we make do. Scrappies is very new to the market. Um, Bitterman's is in the market. And whenever the orange cream citrate was a product that was available to us, I would actually cut the Angostura orange 50-50 in a bitters bottle mm. because that Angostura orange flavors so much. And again, all those bitters have that burnt caramel base yep. at, uh, in them. And the orange cream citrate is citrate, right? So it's it's brighter. It doesn't have that sort of sugary flavor to it. So I, I, I do think that that's a good solution. 
I don't know. I, I, I leave everybody to their own, like whatever orange bitters you like. Mm-hmm. But um, that's just what we use is the scrappies. I think the caramel is a little more toned down, mm-hmm. right? But because of the commercial unavailability of all of these ingredients for so long, this drink just dies. Languishes, yeah. Yeah. Forgotten. It's in books, but also people aren't reading cocktail books because cocktails aren't cool. Right. Exactly. For so long. People aren't reaching for them. It's not really till the early aughts and mm-hmm. beyond. And this drink is, you know, it is not a priority of the craft cocktail revival, <laughs> right? Even the aviation makes a comeback before yeah. this one, which, I mean, talk about, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Have you tried a reverse aviation? I'm a huge, and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what um, would that be like? <laughs> two ounces of crimson wallet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real cocktail nerd <laughs> joke right there, and I love it. <laughs> um, all right, I got one for you on the Alaska, though. Uh, we're, you know, we're chatting about this cocktail, and I think I mentioned to you that this one drink, or this is probably the one drink where I can pinpoint the exact date and approximate time that I had my first. And it would have been... It was COVID, wasn't it? It was COVID. Yeah. <laughs> it was May 11th, 2020, and it just popped up that it was the anniversary of it was it was um the anniversary of Alaska becoming an organized territory right may 11th 1912 so it was the, the whatever the 110th anniversary or something that popped up and i'm like ah oh, the alaska i know it's a cocktail i've definitely never had one and that's where i had my first and I was going to say maybe my last, definitely not my last because it was COVID and we were drinking a lot of them, but I remember sure. making it and I still have a photo from that day. So all of which is a long way of asking, when did you have your first Alaska? Yeah, um, I I had, I, I'm, I can't pinpoint the first time I made one. I want to say the first time I made one was when I was in New Orleans and somebody had brought the drink up to me. I was like, hey, do you know that drink because you're from Alaska? You know, and I was like, yeah, I never heard of it. So we tried it, I think, then, and I just kind of languished <laughs> in my mind. Then whenever I moved back to Anchorage, I'd been uh, working in New Orleans for some time and uh, bartending there and was moving back to Anchorage and looking to sort of bring what I learned in New Orleans to my good friends of Anchorage. And I noticed that the Alaska was on a lot of menus. And I do remember the first time I had one that I was like, "Is it supposed to? T- is it supposed to taste like this? <laughs> like, the, did they do this on purpose?" Um, you know, I remember. I'm not gonna. You know, I'm not gonna say the name of the place, but um, you know, this is a drink that was really heartily embraced in Alaska for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, that minute is kind of past there. Honestly, you don't see really? it on as many menus. We try and feature it whenever we do, you know, as, as we were saying, Yellow Chartreuse availability is not great. Um, so whenever we do have that availability, um, we try and offer it. And I have offered so many versions of this drink. And the first time that I had it where it really clicked for me, um, and this isn't the build I use anymore, but I did, like I said, approach it like a Manhattan. And I used a barrel-aged old Tom Gin. Now, I've since abandoned that method, but if you're making this at home, that's a really great option. You know, there's great options from, of course, Ransom is sort of the the Mm -hmm. go-to. Ransom, barrel-aged old Tom, um, especially because historically, if you're trying to make this original first recipe, uh, old Tom gin coming to the United States was usually rested on oak. So if you were drinking old Tom gin in 1914, odds are it was sitting in a barrel for a very long time. So the barrel-aged versions versus like a Heyman's old Tom, which is a great product. Yeah. Uh, you would want to go for Bar Hill, their aged old uh, old Tom, um, like I said, Ransom or um, Copper and Kings was actually what we were using at the time hmm. at my bar, the uh, American Old Tom, 
from that and to do the Manhattan build and to just think, approach it like you're drinking a Manhattan, that was kind of revelatory for me. It was a, it was a very good drink because the f- previous times I had it, it was had martini aspirations, which it's it's just not going to hit that. It's too sweet. Mm-hmm. It was too unbalanced to really be that style of cocktail. But whenever you go into it, just looking for that that deep sense of uh, herbal character, um, and then the yellow chartreuse, that uh, lemon balm, eucalyptus, and sort of that Benedictine thing of you know cinnamon, clove, yep. nutmeg. That really goes well with brown spirits, right? I mean, traditionally, I would say green chartreuse, great with clear spirits, uh, gin, uh, tequila, agave spirits, things like that. And then you would use yellow chartreuse for brown spirits, applejack, you Uh, know? Yeah, yeah. Yellow chartreuse, applejack, uh, famous diamondback cocktail, fantastic cocktail. Another one slept on. Hey, there's an episode for you. (laughs) So um, that's a really good one. And so the first time I had that, that was in. 2016, um, whenever I first tried it like that, I'd come back to Alaska. I'd seen all these very bad Alaska cocktails, and that was the version we were going to do. But being in Alaska and being a gin bar in Alaska, I feel like we have some sense of responsibility to honor the locally made spirits, right? Mm -hmm. And because this is a drink that the style of gin has changed every single time, the build of it has changed so many times, why isn't it adaptable now, right? I say the biggest thing that happened that t- t- that is not great about the cocktail revolution in the early days was sticking to the script. Oh, it, everything is left in the past. We're not we're not changing it. You change it, you call it something new. I think there's a lot of drinks that we could tweak with what we know now and still like preserve the character of it. Still mm-hmm. call it the drink. And I think that this is one of them. And I think we're at that point now totally. as well, right? Like, well, well, I'm in Anchorage. We're about 10 years behind. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean that affectionately to all my friends in Anchorage listening to this. But, you know, we'll, we'll get there one day. But, um, I mean, I, I think that that's the best way to do it. So, you know, our final build and what I've arrived at is we're using um, Alaskan-made gin. I know that's not going to be accessible to everybody. Yeah, you're telling us, oh, you can't get Regans out there. Where the, where's the where's the Alaskan gin for the rest of us out yeah, here? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk about coming on and making it real exclusive here, well, it is Trey. A, they have a great mail order business, this company, oh, yeah? uh, Amalga, which we're tasting here. But um, yeah, there's um, some other gins you can use. This is Amalga gin out of Juneau, Alaska. The main characteristic of this is the Labrador tea, and that's what makes it suited to this cocktail. That Labrador tea with the yellow chartreuse. I mean, what is Labrador it? tea for those? Labrador tea is um, it's like a it's been used by um, native peoples uh, all across the Arctic for centuries as a salve, but also like um, like it's just something that they drink. You heat it up, you drink it to keep yourself warm. And um, what's it, it made from? It's made from flowers that oh, are forged. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. And so um, it, they're like dried flowers, and um, they make that as a drink. But it goes into this, and that big herbal, it's got sort of a chamomile cinnamon, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of vibes to it. And it really matches great with that yellow chartreuse. Now, some other gins that might be available to you that use that, uh, that have Labrador tea. There's two other ones. Nordisk, which is, um, God, I can't remember where that's from, but it is from Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. But um, another one that's really cool is Ungava, um, and that's from Quebec. It's from northern Quebec, and it's uh, that one is really cool. It's made with, um, you know, the indigenous varietal, you know, uh, botanicals and things like that of northern Quebec that have been used by the native peoples there. So it's a mm-hmm. fairly similar 
Um, that one has some color to it if you do get your hands on that. But um, if you were to try and get this amalgogen, which I highly recommend, it's made with Alaskan botanicals like rhubarb, the Labrador tea. It's got a lovely piney character to Spruce it as well. Tips. Yeah. yeah, Devil's Club, mm-hmm. which is another really cool local Alaskan botanical. has sort of an aloe vera-like quality to it. It's a little bit vegetal. It's a little bit spicy. I'm trying to think of what larger mass market. Obviously, this is a new Western gen. I, I, you know, I'm tasting this for the first time here, and what I love about it is that it's still very recognizably a gin, right? Like, right. So many new westerns are like, I don't know what the hell that they is. They put like, one juniper berry yeah, in exactly, with like that's it. six pounds of sea cucumbers <laughs> and urchins, and they're like, yeah, this is cool seaside gin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I'm just, this. I'm trying to think. What this tastes like on a on a larger mass market scale, you know, if folks are maybe you know looking for something kind of similar. I want to ah, Saint George Terroir. I know that's sure. still small, but or, or it's not like a mass market. But yeah, sure. you know the, the the Douglas fir that they use for that. Right. Uh, it it is, doesn't have that herbal sweet cinnamony thing. Yeah, that and, this has. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah, I see that. It's that's it's like very a drier. Yeah, yeah. That would be like a drier take than this. And this isn't sweet, but it, it's you know has a perception of sweetness because right. of some of those ingredients for sure. Yeah. But um, that's the thing about new Western gins, right? Mm-hmm. Is you know for the best suited gins for the most cocktails is going to be London Dry. Or for me, for my martinis, my workhorse on the bar, Plymouth. Okay, I have 150 gins on the wall, but if you, I had to pick one that went in, I've got to make the most amount of drinks with it. I have the highest success rate for me is Plymouth. Yeah. Um, it is the original one to really subdue that juniper yep. to where it's not the first thing you taste. So it's very approachable for people who come to my bar and they're like, I'm not used to drinking gin. I usually drink a vodka martini, but I'll try a gin martini because when in Rome... That's a really good one to put in front of them, right? For sure. But um, New Western Gins is a category that I would say I shunned. It's just not something I've usually reached for because they always do one, maybe two drinks very well, and the rest of them not that great. Mm-hmm. As much as I love Amalga, this is a fantastic gin. A Gimlet with this is not great. A Martini with this is not great. Um, but a drink like this that's very herbal or, um, you know, at, at our bar, we're very famous for our Barcelona-style gin and tonics. And so we do a gin and tonic uh, of this whenever we can get spruce tips, fresh spruce tips, and things like that. You've got to package these new Western gins into a very specific place. But if you find the place for them, they make exceptional cocktails, not yeah. just passable, right? And also, if you're, you have 150 gins on your bar, like, that's the beauty of it, where you can literally choose one gin for each cocktail if you want. I mean, I don't know if right. it works from a financial point of view or also like probably a pain in the ass when you're like, okay, well now I got to get the, you know, I got to get this gin down for this cocktail. Well, I, think, I think my bar team would agree with you that it is a pain in the ass, <laughs> but it is what we do because but, we're trying to spotlight it yeah. it's a, as a category. We want to spotlight it and uh, sort of bring that category to people. And, uh, you know, I mean, the biggest thing always is telling, you know, showing people gin isn't just pine needles. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mind it when it's just pine needles, right? Me but neither. for people just getting into it, there's there's a gin for everybody. For sure. Yeah, no. It's and, the and one category the where everybody will be pleased with a version of it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, then, uh, yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a talk you got to have with yourself because gin yeah, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. as you say, it can be, it can be every, especially these days, like you say, with the selection available. Um Next ingredient, obviously chartreuse, yellow. Uh, it is funny that we're doing a chartreuse cocktail yeah. now in these times of shortages. Yeah. Um, 
I got to say, I'm seeing a lot of different articles published at the moment that are saying like, you can't find yellow chartreuse. You can't find chartreuse. Generally, people are probably more often green, you know, green yeah. but you can't find chartreuse. This is what you should use instead. I, I disagree with those articles wholeheartedly because I think that much as I've said in this podcast before, much as the Negroni is a Campari cocktail and it should only be made with Campari, and also the gin is kind of by the by, in my opinion, when it comes to Negroni, chartreuse cocktails are chartreuse cocktails. Yes. There's no substitute. There, you, can't, you can't put anything else in there. And, and I think I get why people are publishing them. Great for traffic. Yeah, you know, sure. you know whatever. This is a conversation. But it's bullshit. 100%. I mean, it's the only liquor so good they named a color after it, all right? <laughs> exactly. You're not going to replace it with <laughs> really anything. No. Um, that said, I mean, for green, I don't know what you guys' thoughts on Fazio Bruto are. In certain cocktails, it works. This Alaska cocktail we're talking about, there's not a substitute for the yellow in this. Oh, no, because the closest thing to yellow is Benedictine. Yeah. I would say. They're made in that style, um, made in a similar style. But, I mean, even that's going to be way too sweet. I'm not saying these are bad products, by the way. I'm saying there's absolutely no, a place I, for them. I yeah. do agree with you. The, I do agree with you that, like, if you don't have that ingredient, don't make the drink. There's other drinks. Exactly. You can drink other things. It's crazy. <laughs> you don't have to have that last word whenever I don't have chartreuse in my bar. I, there's a ton. Of, if you like a last word, there's a hundred other drinks you're probably going to like. Go for the right? reverse aviation. Yeah, reverse aviation. Total. I mean, we crush on reverse aviations. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you're the second largest seller of that. Uh, yeah. The Violet in the <laughs> yeah. United States over yeah. there. Um, but yeah, you know, and not much more is left to be said in a way on, on yellow chartreuse for this one, unless, you know, unless there are any other, I don't know, unless you have any other tips here, if people can get their hands on a bottle or just, yeah, in relation to this cocktail. Um, yeah, I, I, not really. I mean, if you guys have tips on how to get chartreuse, <laughs> hit me up. <laughs> I can send you home with a bottle Tra- for Trace sure. Trace Sanford AK <laughs> on Instagram. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, we sort of saw the writing on the wall with the whole chartreuse thing happening a while ago whenever we had this on the menu. And that's when we decided to make the drink drier. Okay. We wanted to dry this drink out more to that three to one portion mm-hmm. versus the two one two to extend our inventory of yellow chartreuse. That was about when, again, to go back, that was about when Amalga got involved because we wanted something that was going to preserve that body mm-hmm. and that. So I would, that would be my biggest tip is find a gin that has these more pronounced winter spice notes and things like that to it that's going to sort of extend, you know, reach out to that yellow chartreuse flavor. It's not going to be a replacement for it. I'm not trying to say that. But if you have that yellow chartreuse already in there, and you have the botanicals that really work with it to boost its profile, you can make the drink in that drier build and preserve your inventory. Yeah. That's also great from a cost perspective. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, uh, as a bar manager, I got to look at those dollars and cents. Yeah. And, um, you know, a drink that with ingredients not a lot of people have ever heard of uh, that you're proposing to them and you're like, oh, by the way, it's, you know, uh, $22. So uh, you want to try one? Yeah. That, I mean, that doesn't work. So if you... Enhance the uh, the the amount of gin in the drink. Try it out. Better cost, and you're gonna make that bottle of chartreuse last that much longer. Mm-hmm. I want to say that in the Oxford Companion, they recommend six to eight parts gin to one part chartreuse. Which I don't know. That sounds like maybe we'll f- discover soon, but maybe that's closer to where you're getting to with your current. Uh, or yeah. when you have it on the I menu. mean, we have at various points, and again, we this. if there's one drink I've spent more time on <laughs> than this one drink, there's one drink as a gin bar in Alaska we had to get right if we were going to put it on our menu. It's this. And we even at some point tried, like, 
as much as we love chartreuse, the biggest obstacle was it is that richness of the yellow chartreuse and the availability of it. At one point, we had it in a dasher. We're just sort of dashing it. How little chartreuse can we get away with putting in this? <laughs> and we just sort of dashed it in more and more until we arrived back at that close to three to one spec. Soon you're just going saffron water. Yeah, just exactly. like for the yeah. color. Saffron water and glycerin. Yeah. Some lemon balm in there. Yeah. Um, what's your, just curious on this one, what's your well martini gin at your bar? Um, our house martini right now we make with Ford's gin. Nice. Classic. Mm. Um, and it's fairly new to our market. We just got Ford's last year. And um, it's just a gin that I've always been a huge fan of mm-hmm. and uh, proud to support the brand and mm-hmm. everything like that. But for me Incredible. at home, Plymouth, Ford's, Oxley is one that we've had. You know, we feature a lot of different – Martini's always on the menu because it's my favorite drink. And, again, most of our guests come in want it, thinking that it's a vodka drink. And we're more than happy to – for those of my guests listening, <laughs> happy to still make you that vodka martini. Yep. Okay. But we're a gin bar and we like to present – our version of the martini. Um, and we variously used Plymouth, uh, Ford's, Oxley's a really good one, and Sipsmith London Dry Dude. is a really nice solid one. Those sort of run the gamut of what kind of flavors uh, you want to get across. That Sipsmith's really got those marmalade. Sipsmith's been slept on too much here in the US. Another one I'm hearing coming up a lot these days, I don't know, uh, I think it's pretty new to the US market, is Boatyard. A yeah. lot of people using Boatyard. Yeah. That's yeah. a solid gin. It's all right. We actually haven't got it in the market in Alaska yet. I think it's pretty, yeah, I think it's fairly, I don't know. Anyway. I mean, we'll see it in another five years, I guess. Yeah. I <laughs> um, but By which it, it point? is one I've, I've had. Um, I liked it. You know, it didn't jump out of the glass for me in the way that it seems to for everybody else. But I'm, hey, I'm the same. Get your I, bread, Boatyard. It's, yeah. you know, I don't know whether they just have like a really good, like beloved salesperson here as well. That sure. Just like, yeah, we're buying it. Because those things also matter, right? Like your rep. And 100%. Those things. So, again, nothing against the gin, but... Um, so we covered bitters, but your thinking for this one would be... Actually, we covered bitters in general and orange bitters in general, but what's your thinking for this cocktail? For this one, yeah, um, what we're using right now is the Scrappies version. The Scrappies. Um, and we're going for one nice, nice long dash, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, dude, we could probably do a whole other hour on just like, what is a dash, right? How much is a dash in these older drinks versus what is a dash in a... You know what I mean? Uh, certain era, it's were they using Dasher bottles in 1890? The, the, the listeners have requested this, actually. And, really? <laughs> and I think yeah. we got to do it at some point because I mean, I, 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 I'm the same. Also, is that Dash <laughs> coming out the, the bitters bottle or is yeah. it coming out? And how a... full is the bottle? We've all just opened a bottle of bitters. You're in the middle of service and you're like, yeah. and it just comes out a drop at a time. It's more a dot than a Dash mm-hmm. um, at that point. So, I, you know, I don't know. But for me, the flavor, you know, maybe that to go back to Gaz Regan, right, is um, taste your drinks. Yeah, like to, exactly. Your juice tastes different every time. Mm-hmm. Um, your bitters are coming out different. They right? are. I, I don't know that what that dash is going to be, you know. So in do you decant yours into little dasher bottles or not? Um, we, so we use teardroppers. Teardroppers. Yeah. Okay. But still, I mean, the accuracy of those when you're in the weeds, I, I yeah. you know, don't be too confident in how consistent that is. <laughs> um, so um, that's that's how we dispense those on mm-hmm. the bar. But um, yeah, that's, uh, you should do an episode about that, man. We, the, we the, got the, it. The, you know, like like I said, we had we had one, uh, we had one listener reach out and I, you know, I, I forget who it was, but we're, we're definitely it's on our radar we're lining it up well, i think i have a special guest in mind for it nice well um what's funny is we got um about two years ago in the middle of covid 
three years ago, we got a new um, software system for all of our recipe inventory control, and we had to get everything to an exact weight to have it as a unit of measurement in our system. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, this was crazy to me, putting down a piece of tissue paper or, uh, you know, like deli paper on a scale, on a micro scale, tearing it out and then putting one dash. How much does that weigh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Then you do another bitter. How much does that dash weigh? It weighs different. They each weigh different micro amounts. So it's like, it's really hard to get precision on stuff that has those different weights, viscosities, things like that. So you'll be the correct person to answer this then. I, I asked a guest recently, I, I can't remember when this came up, I think it might have come up in the Godfather episode, whether an ounce of gin, a fluid ounce of gin, weighs the same as a fluid ounce of whiskey, for example. I mean, they all have different viscosities. So that, and, and so they weigh I, differently. I saw differentials. Yeah. In, I mean, not like a ton. But, I mean, it was enough that I was like, okay, that's interesting, right? And also, if you're batching, then it really does make a difference 100%. in volume and yeah. assuming. No, yeah, it was like, yeah. that was very eye-opening for me, was whenever we weighed different spirits, different uh, bitters, especially that one drop, you could see that much difference in weight. And so this Between concept- Angostura and Pichot, Angostura weighs much more than Pichot. Not much more, but you know what I mean? It was like a micro-measurement more. Of- Wow. Yeah. So you have, what, a system whereby you sell a drink and then the inventory system knows, okay, this is how much of that is gone. And then at the end of the day, right. it tells you you need to order more of this. Well, I mean, that's how it, sh- that's how it should work. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to um, bad talk, uh, you know, the software system this is. It didn't really fulfill on its promises. It's not all the free drinks but, that are being given yeah, away, yeah, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, we've bought, we've only uh, purchased a case of Fernet and sold two shots in the last year, you know, maybe it'll figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Fernet's still big up there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just got big up there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's like dying off everywhere else. What about this one they're drinking a lot in Canada right now? Um, Equal parts tequila and San Germain is a shot. Uh, Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard of that one yet. What's Uh, that called? I forget what it's called, uh, but... I feel like Canada has an interesting situation with shots. What's the other one I had in Alberta, which is like tequila and Tabasco? I have had that, the Prairie Fire. Prairie Fire, yeah. Prairie yeah, Fire yeah, is yeah, a yeah. solid drink. I spent a, a lot great... of time in Western Canada. Yep. Shout out to Western Canadians for coming up with that chaotic mix of things. <laughs> it's delicious. Um, but though. it works. It works. Yeah. We also tra- from the home of the Caesar. So, yeah, you know. Exactly. Or, uh, yeah. Clam juice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in a landlocked province. Nothing weird about that. They have a lot of oil money over there in <laughs> yeah. Alberta. So they're doing just fine. They can, yeah, they yeah, can yeah. bring in whatever they want. They can they do want whatever they like. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Yeah. We do a lot of Fernet 50 50s with the Minta. Because, mm. uh, you know, kind of cuts the nastiness of it. I really like to make bartenders cringe and say half Fernet, half Jägermeister. It works. Try it. <laughs> All right. Second hot take for you here today. <laughs> yeah. I want to go down to, a, you know, I don't want to say a fancy bar, but I want to go down where maybe bartenders might take themselves a little bit too seriously. And I've always wanted to do a blind tasting of Amaro's, and I like to say Amaro's to piss them off as well. I know it's Amari, but I would like to do a blind tasting of Amaro's side by side. I'll stick Jägermeister in there, and you want to bet that they will love it. Oh, because I, it's a great product. 100%. Marketing. I joke all the time if Jägermeister launched in the US today, we had no background, no frat boy stuff, Slayer, none of it, the Mardi Gras connection, none of it. And you bring it to, you know, one of these 
mustache wax guys. Exactly. And they would be like, you have to try this. This is a botanical blend from Germany. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's made in this tradition and mm-hmm. everything. And it's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just funny. It's the you context bl- that ruins it. Ex- you blind them on that and they go, oh, my God, that's Hans Riesetbauer, isn't it? Oh, no, I think he's Austrian, actually. They're like, no, tell me that's him, you know, like Odevier or whatever. It's like, nope, this is Jägermeister. Right. And I, I mean, I think that that's like, a, shall we say, a uh, a dereliction of duty for us bartenders. I think that we should be above brand stigmas and be able to stick by products that are consistent quality. I mean, Jägermeister's a really cool product that has a lot of history. I mean, this has nothing to do with the drink we're doing, so we can get back on subject. But um, yeah, I just think that in general, bartenders need to stay behind things that are good. And help them stay in fashion. The people know? are saying, Trey, put your money where your mouth is. We want to see a Jägermeister drink on your bar. We want yeah. to see a cocktail with Jäger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any more hot takes while we're at it? Yeah. <laughs> Pile them on. I, oh, man. I could, I could, yeah, I could fill a book with them. But yeah. <laughs> I don't All know. I don't want to make anybody mad on my first appearance here. <laughs> yeah. First and possibly last here. It depends. We'll see, <laughs> see what the feedback is on some of these takes. Uh, no, I jest. So. How about you talk us through your build now? Talk us through your recipe, yeah, so, talk us through your spec, and great. Um, yeah. Well, there was a, a, a an ingredient we didn't touch on, and oh, I the think, garnish. Well, that there's two ingredients we didn't touch Actually, on. Actually, yeah. <laughs> so um, is the it, garnish is. Would this be the ingredient here? Yeah, you got it. So I'm a big believer in saline in most, if not all, things mm-hmm. drinks. This drink in particular. I think really benefits from saline solution. Our saline solution is uh, 20% or, you know, 80, 20, 80 water, 20% salt. It is key to me. And you can say I'm nuts. I think you need to use a high quality salt. I really think that that is the difference between the elevation of the, of your drink. And for us, we use, as you see here, pure Alas- uh, finishing salt, Prince William Sound. This is from Prince William Sound in Alaska. Prince William Sound is, uh, I'd say, what, 20 miles from the bar where uh, where I work. And so it's coming right from our backyard, and we see the purveyors of this salt. And they're actually making it in a style very similar to Melbourne and how they harvest it and produce it. And um, I usually never leave the house without some Maldon or some type of finishing salt. So this one is fantastic. It has a really nice mineral content because of the fresh waters of the Prince William Sound. And again, if we're doing it in Alaska, it should taste like Alaska, right? <laughs> I so love it. Um, my build uses that. We're going, again, a drier build here. I'm going 2.5 ounces amalgogen, okay? Uh, again, Nordisk and Ungava, if those are available in your market, those are great substitutes. 0.5 chartreuse. Again, that's going to preserve the amount of chartreuse you use. You're still going to get that big pop uh, of all those spices because of everything present in the amalga. Two dashes of orange bitters or w- one long one. Again, you know, <laughs> weigh, it, it's actually going to point uh, weigh 0.0001 <laughs> milligrams. Yeah. Um, that amount. And then I'm going to use three uh, teardrops of the 80-20 saline solution. Um, the garnish is because the garnish has changed. The first recipe doesn't have a garnish. The second recipe has a lemon. Third recipe doesn't list a garnish, but it lists the gnome as having a mint leaf. So, look, that's up for grabs, right? And we use an orange. We use a nice long orange peel. I really like the sweet citrus note on the finish and the aromatics that it gives the drink. 
Nice. Yeah, it, it feels it feels more of the combination. It feels more fitting for that combination right. rather than yeah, I think that you know the lemon. I like the lemon, but yeah, again, that's more more the the, the kind of martini. Sure. Yeah. More of a martini and again, bill, right? You know, the drier it, drink. And we're, I'm approaching this like a Manhattan. I'm mm. approaching this as a gen Manhattan adjacent thing. And so, um, you know, I've seen people put lemons on a Manhattan. I think it's kind of weird. Orange peel is more traditional. Mm. And I really think it helps the botanicals specific to this gin and the yellow chartreuse really pop. And there's orange bitters in there, right? Yeah, so that's actually pairing with one of the ingredients there, for sure. So that's the build. We're doing a stir on that, despite that two out of three of the printed recipes say shake. If I had all the time in the world and I didn't have a ticket printer um, screaming at me, maybe a throw would be great. Um, So if you're making this at home and you're uh, confident in your throwing skills, uh, go right for it. But we're going to be doing a stir. And um, I think this is a really thing that I instill in, uh, you know, anybody I'm teaching is... The 18 to 22% dilution in stirred drinks, right? Um, you want to make sure to – you have a 4% range in my opinion, but the dilution is super important to the drink mm-hmm. because if it's under diluted, first of all, your wash line screwed up and I hate having seeing somebody throw it back in the stir, go back out. Yeah. I mean, it happens, but we don't like to see it. Um, so we get that 18 to 22% dilution. We have your standard uh, crystal stirring glass. I want to build my ingredients cheapest first. I know I called them in the most expensive order, but you know the bar manager and me, the spreadsheet guy. <laughs> you're putting your cheapest <laughs> ingredient. There aren't a lot of cheap ingredients in this drink. Nope. Another reason why it's probably not as popular, right? But uh, you start with your bitters, then your gin, then your chartreuse, right? And then you pack that thing. That's a. I, I see everybody's got their own approach. I want to see that stirring glass packed with ice. Um, because a lower amount of ice has uh, less uh, consistency to how it's going to melt. I know how that's going to melt at uh, when it's totally full. So I'm stirring that until it reaches right about, you know, our beakers that we use, they're uh, from Botanist Gin, because we sell a lot of Botanist Gin. They give us those stirring glasses. Right where the lettering begins on that, whenever it hits there, that's how we know it's done. That's nice. right at 20% dilution, and we know it's going to hit the right wash line. It's going to hit the uh, the ideal you know, dilution rate for the uh, the texture of this drink is really important because it definitely has potential to get very thick. The yellow chartreuse is very thick. If you're using Old Tom gin, it's very thick. This gin has quite a viscosity to it as well. So the dilution, super important. Nice, nice. And, of course, a Nick and Nora glass for this one. Nick and Nora. Two out of three of these recipes call for a coupe, but uh, David Enbury calls for a Nick and Nora. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. And that's my glassware choice just for, you know, we just recently, you know, trying to be more populist and approachable, we switched our martinis to V-shaped glasses. That was a very controversial (laughs) thing in the house, but, you know, I'm a company man at the end of the day, so, you know, whatever the guests like, whatever the owners Mm -hmm. like, that's... Most important at the end of the day. So we have the V-shaped glasses, but I, just for functionality, I don't like, I don't even really like coupes. I don't like the V-shape. The functionality of them is not very good. Nick Mm -hmm. and Nora has the highest functionality of stemware, and it keeps the drink at the same temperature the longest. Nice. 
only downside for Nick and Nora for me is that the way I'm making my martinis at home, you probably only get half of them in that Nick and Nora. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but, I know that's, for a bar. that's always the guest pushback. You know, we, we make them in Nick and Nora's. And again, we're in a smaller market. So, you know, there's not like five other cocktail bars on the road for them to compare us to. And I put it in front of them and I just know they're going to say, where's the rest of it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, what's crazy. You're the first person that's yeah. ever cracked that joke never, ever. Oh, that's never hilarious. Yeah, no yeah, one's yeah. ever said that before, buddy. Yeah. How, but, is, how often is that going through your mind? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, you know, guest perception's important. You sure. know, we're here for the guests. It's not, you know, just about. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Here's the glass other. I think is coolest, <laughs> you know. But if I'm making that particular drink, because it is a smaller, stouter drink, we can make the argument that a martini does belong, you know, in a glass with about another ounce and a half in it. Um, but this drink is a little stouter. It's a little more concentrated. Yeah, it's got and, a lot punch to it, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think for preserving the air, again, drinks that have heavy aromatics are best in a Nick and Nora mm-hmm. because you have, with the larger surface area, it's kind of hard to get that. Yeah. But you get kinda more funnels of funnels it in there like a, right. like a champagne tulip. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Trey, any final thoughts on the Alaska for us today before we move into the five quick hit weekly questions. Oh God, that's that's my favorite part. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. But um, no, I mean, I do think that this is a kind, I mean, if you can get a hold of chartreuse, this is really bad timing, mm-hmm. right? Um, that this is a drink that, you know, uh, deserves some respect. It's a Rodney Dangerfield of cocktails. It just really hasn't gotten a lot of due. I don't really see it. Uh, I mean, again, th- when I saw it on menus in Alaska, it was a flash in the pan and people got rid of it because they saw the high costs and everything like that. And maybe it wasn't of the modern flavor profile. This is one of those drinks that has mm-hmm. that late 19th century, early 20th century flavor profile without tweaking it. But I think it's worthy of respect. I think it's a good drink of its own right. Um, and it's been a drink that's an entryway for gin drinkers, uh, for uh, my guests to get them into gin and our gin program if they're whiskey drinkers. Huh. Which makes sense, again, with the, with the yeah, Manhattan approach. Exactly. I have uh, two, two regulars who come in and they were Manhattan drinkers and we got them on the Alaska cocktail and now they're gin and tonic drinkers. Like that pipeline went really, (laughs) really hard one way. So I do think, you know, for um, opening people up for different experiences and tasting different kinds of cocktails, this is a really good pipeline for a lot of um, aged spirit type of drinkers. Mm -hmm. And don't sleep on the gnome either. Yeah, the gnome's incredible. <laughs> I, think, try that. I think if I put that on a menu, I'd sell exactly one of them. <laughs> but um, but it's, it's a great drink. <laughs> Highly recommend. I got to try that. All right, then. Let's do it. Let's, let, let's kick off with question number one today, as is customary. Um, Trey, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? But I'm going to say your back bar at home, because obviously you're a gym bar. We've discussed that sure. at length today. So My, your, yeah. your, your home back bar, your home bar. Well, you know, gin doesn't last very long at home. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I really don't have that many bottles of gin. And, you know, the the home back bar, I don't, I don't really drink a lot of cocktails at home. As a lot of us, I drink mostly wine. Mm-hmm. I'm a wine. I'm a wino by trade. But um, the uh, spirit that enjoys the most, and the thing I'm the most excited by and interested in right now, is sugarcane spirits, just because it's the only category that rivals gin in its diversity. You know, what I mean, if I'm looking as a creator and a uh, you know creative director and bar manager, it is endless opportunity for creation. Um, you know, we were talking about Shadanda. Mm-hmm. Um, I love some of those Shadandas I've been trying. 
Um, the one with the mushrooms, I can't remember what it's called. Have you had that? The, the mushroom Shiranda. We just got that in the yeah, market. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. incredible. The name escapes me, but I, escapes I just, me. I literally yeah, just tried it last week. It's delicious. I, yeah, I'm in love with it. Um, you know, cachaça, we do cachaça cocktails in the summer every year and they kill, you know, I think that that's a category of spirit that deserves mm-hmm. a little more, you know, outside of like caipirinhas in a Brazilian steakhouse, people don't really think about it, mm-hmm. but I think that's an incredible category. Rum agricole, um, you know, from Martinique and Antigua, Guadalupe, Clarine, all that stuff. Very intriguing, very interesting to me. And I think a total uh, fortune in making cocktails with, because I don't see those used as much in cocktails, but they are very versatile. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. All right, question number two for you. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Ooh, can I, can I do ingredient and tool? Go for it. Yeah, we got it. So, um, ingredient. Okay, celery. Celery is a underutilized, if it's even utilized at all by anybody but me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, you know where you see sort of um, these very consultant-driven menus in the spring and summertime do Saint Germain cucumber cocktail. The pros' choice, guys. Uh, if you're a bar manager, take one piece of advice from me: celery and salars does the same thing that Saint Germain and cucumber does, but better. Okay. And you can hinge an entire spring or summer menu on that flavor combination. Celery mm-hmm. and a margarita. Our house margarita is a spicy margarita with celery leaves. It utilizes waste, the celery leaf, right? Uh, celery stalks, things like that that wouldn't be used in the in the food. But you can make syrups from it. You can take the leaves and shake them in your drinks to sort of get the essence of the celery in it. I think that that is super slept on as an ingredient, especially with gin and mezcal. Do you peel your celery? Um, the the kitchen does, <laughs> and then I use it because it's it's a waste utilization, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I'm always looking at what the kitchen is throwing out, you know, fennel fronds, things mm. like that. We use fennel fronds in our cocktails. Yeah, seasonally we use celery. And, um, you know, we're working on a plan right now actually to utilize 100 percent of our waste. Uh, whatever the kitchen is throwing out, I want to be able to convert to something, and that's been challenging. Like, what am I going to do with turnip tops, right? But there's got to be gold in them hills. There's got to be something I can find. So the next year, uh, my priority as a bar manager to help get overall restaurant costs down and, you know, the environment and spurns your creativity. Yeah, for sure. And makes me think about turnip cocktails, right? <laughs> um, you know, uh, utilizing that waste. And celery is a – if you really are looking at your bottom lines and you're looking at what your waste is, there's always celery scraps. Mm-hmm, Every restaurant sure. I've ever worked in, tons of celery Just scraps. Just throw it in the fish stock. You know, that was the classic old yeah. back in the restaurant. You know, you got to look after those stocks. All right, then what about tool then? Um, as for a tool, I think that the most slept on thing is a good peeler. Um, because like I said, our, our big specialty at the bar is Barcelona style gin and tonics. Every single one of those starts with peels of lemon, orange, grapefruit, everything like that. And whether I have peelers, whether I have good peelers, how many of them I have is going to make or break the shift. And it's going to make or break the quality of the drink. If your peel is too wide, the drink is too much citrus. It's too much perfume of it. You have to have consistency in that. And you have to have peelers that you're very intimate and familiar with if you're serious about your bar program, in my opinion. I mean, I think that's what's more important than it being a good peeler. I could go to the restaurant supply store and spend $20 on a peeler. On a great peeler. And it's going to be dog shit for peeling (laughs) grapefruit for our gin and tonics, right? Exactly. And I can go to the thrift store and grab, you know, a potato peeler 
uh, that's been sitting there since the Obama administration, <laughs> and it might do a better job of that one job, right? Yep. That one job. I mean, I'm usually, you know, my bar team's heard me say it a hundred times. I'm usually against unitaskers. Like, I don't like to have tools on the bar that we're not using for several tasks. But with the peelers, you might have a peeler, like a legacy peeler that mm-hmm. does no other job but remove the peel of one fruit, and I respect that. Love it. I'm glad. I'm glad to have found a kindred spirit on yeah. that one. There. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question number three: What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Um, I wish I could remember exactly who told me this, but somebody saying to me when I really got up on the the cocktail side of things, you know, really upping my cocktail game in New Orleans, you know, in sort of a fairly stuffy environment. A elder bartender said to me, people were drinking drinks for 30, 40 years when you couldn't get a single good one in town. Why were they there? They weren't there for the drinks, right? They're not here for that. It's great. Making a great drink is so much of bartending. I don't want to undermine that. I think it's super important to be quality focused. But I don't even think that that's – I think that that might be – it's 60-40. If you're providing a good experience – you're kind to your guests. You listen to what they want instead of telling them what they want. I think there's some degree of that. Sometimes people need to be steered and you're helping them. But it's not about you. It's not about us as bartenders. We need to stand in the back and make sure that our guests are happy with what they're getting. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. I, I, I really stand behind that wholeheartedly. But I've never heard it expressed in that way. It's a great point. Yeah, 30 years. What the fuck were we doing? Yeah, we're going there for the but the third space. It wasn't like every bar in the country went out of business. <laughs> they built more of them, right? Exactly. They thrived. If yeah. anything. Uh, interesting. Food for thought. All right. Penultimate question today: If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Yeah. Um. You know, this is, it might not be the most interesting answer, but the you know bartender I look up the most to uh, in this biz, Chris Hanna, in New Orleans. Legends. I'd like to go to Jewel of the South and just have a, a Crusta or a French 75. I don't care. Just whatever he wants to make me. Something classic, something easy. Um, but, you know, just to have something made by a craftsman such as him. I mean, the most simple cocktails um, are amazing. And, um, you know, his level of hospitality is something I aspire to. Mm-hmm. Great answer. All right, final question for you today, Trey. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Oh, that's that, that's like I'm not going to two part it. I'm going to stick with one answer here today. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's my last drink, okay. And uh, this is always such a morbid question because I don't know if it means like I'm going to rehab straight from there, or <laughs> you know I'm on death, death row. row, or you know whatever the nature of it is. Um, I would really my last drink. I mean, as boring as it is. Uh, Pina colada. Ooh. Pina colada. Nice and tall. I put fernet in my pina coladas. I would make it myself <laughs> um, and uh, have a fernet pina colada with Jamaican rum and, uh, you know, our, like, my pineapple syrup that we make for the bar. We do, like, a pineapple oleo. That's really nice with lime juice, and you sort of get a little more structure to the drink, and that would be my last drink. Nice. I'm here for it. Love a pina colada. Yeah. Well, Trey, thank you so much for making the journey out here and sharing some wonderful products with us here today. Uh, Until next time, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. I know what you're thinking, folks. 
That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>